too. <clears throat> so tomorrow, a year ago, my wife had her first major surgery, us not knowing what results we would get. And as you know, we ended up with wonderful results, no cancer in her lymph nodes and doing wonderful. And tomorrow, um, she goes to have her chemo port removed. Uh, and so it is, I, I think it's about as exciting as you can be for a surgery, like you're just ready for that. Um, and so that should be a fairly quick outpatient procedure. Uh, but I want you to be able to just rejoice with us that that, that part of the journey uh, has come to a conclusion. And we're thankful for God's grace that way. Job 22, just remind us, so where are we at in Job? How, do we, how are we here and, and what's going on? Um, we're now entering the, what we call the third cycle of speeches. And it's where Job's friends say something, Job responds. And it's the last cycle of these kind of speeches. And so the first one to launch it again is Eliphaz. He's the oldest guy um, that's, that's there's the group. And, and so he speaks first. And they clearly go oldest to youngest as they work their way through. And as we've come to maybe, and just to remind you, to kind of be used to in the book of Job, um, the friends say something, and it's, it's usually twisted theology, condemnatory, judgmental, painful. Um, actually, it's almost like Satan is speaking through them because the theology is so warped and so twisted. Uh, and then Job typically takes something that they've said, fixates on it, and then starts praying about it and talking to God and to them about it. And that's exactly what happens here this morning. Uh, let, me, let me just get us started by thinking through this way. You know, when I was a kid... And we would go to amusement parks. I remember the worst part was the lines. And so whether it was King's Dominion or Hershey Park or Busch Gardens in Williamsburg, uh, just the incredible S-shaped lines back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and it was boring and you're sitting there and it's, you feel like cattle between all these metal grates or, or taking a road trip. And us going to visit family, whether it's in West Virginia or even in Michigan, and these long car rides, and uh, there was nothing to do, and it, it was boring, and you can only play punch buggy so long, and uh, I don't remember the other games, but if we'd see different license plates or alphabet and I spy, and, and it gets pretty boring after a while, waiting, waiting to arrive or waiting for something to look forward to is just really hard for all of us. And uh, I, obviously, some of us are going to struggle with patience more than others, but um, you, I remember driving, at least in West Virginia, there'd be some beautiful scenery, uh, but I remember one particular trip where it was rainy, dreary, and foggy the whole way, and it just seemed like sheer torture. Now, things are so much different. Now, you know, I took my son to Universal earlier this year. Now, like, for example, the Harry Potter, the Hogwarts ride, like, it's this long, long wait, but you spend the entire time wandering through this recreation of the castle. And it has the touch and, the, and the, the smells, even, the sounds. And so the waiting has become as much almost as part of the ride as the ride itself. And so you don't feel robbed because you waited in line for an hour uh, because you felt like you were already in the ride. Or my kids have rarely taken a trip in their lives where there hasn't been some kind of DVD player system. Praise God for those. That, that kept them sane and us sane, right? But they don't, they, it's like they don't know this kind of a thing, this waiting and prolonging because we found ways to offset it. You're still in line, but it feels like you're in part of the show. You're still traveling, but you have something to entertain you. Most people look for something to distract them when they're in a long season of waiting. Uh, you got nine months waiting for a baby, but there's picking out a name and maybe baby showers and setting up a nursery and the whole nesting phase. There's something to look forward to. But what about if we're, we're waiting, the time of our waiting is acutely painful? It's not just boring. 
uh, like it was when I was a kid, but it's painful. And so you're in this season of hurt, and you're not really seeing a lot of light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, when I've had kidney stones, I've tried to do things to distract myself from the pain. Pray, think about something else. Distract myself with music or a movie or a TV show or anything. Scripture being read aloud. I've tried all kinds of things. Uh, lots of the pain medicine you'll take will take 15, 20, 30 minutes to kick in. And so one of the things I've found helpful is to get into almost a scalding hot shower because the hot water so shocks your nervous system that it almost like your body can't process all of it at the same time. And it offsets the pain. I've, I found myself laying in bed literally counting. Counting, not even sheep, but just counting. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. Just trying to kill enough time till the pain meds would kick in in 20 or 30 minutes so I can get through it. Dealing with the in-betweens of life, the waiting seasons of life, is never easy. But when it's painful or what you're waiting for just seems harder, it just exaggerates the difficulties. Think of waiting when you know you're a kid and you're in trouble, sitting in your bedroom waiting for mom or dad to arrive, or waiting for a teacher, or even a meeting with a principal, or even before a judge, because you're afraid and you're in pain. Waiting for an evaluation from a boss that you really don't think is going to go all that well. Waiting for a decision from the IRS about your taxes. Waiting in pain, waiting in fear, waiting in time of trouble feels impossible. This morning... We'll learn that the in-between of our puzzling pain can actually help us to pray and hope. It's a unique season. It's a difficult season. But it is a season that I want us to learn this morning from Job that can be very, very spiritually beneficial. And God can teach us some things in the darkness of that in-between like no other season of our life. In theological terms, I have to start here. In theological terms, we talk about where we're at right now in history as the already, not yet. And what I mean by that might seem strange, um, but it is important to understand. When I say the already, not yet, what I mean is that when a person is saved, you become a part of God's kingdom, but it, his kingdom is not fully here. Now, now, even when I say that, you might be thinking, but wait a minute, isn't everybody essentially a part of the kingdom? Doesn't God rule everything? Isn't the whole universe is and all of creation? And so let's just unpack that maybe a little bit more. Yes and no. Yes, in his sovereignty and in his power and his omniscience and his omnipotence, God is ruler over all of creation. But he has not fully established his kingdom rule like he will one day. And so the way it works is this. The kingdom is largely instituted when Jesus comes. That's why even in Mark 1.15, he made the statement, repent for the kingdom is at hand. In other words, I'm the kingdom, I've shown up. The, a kingdom has to have a king, has to have a ruler, it has to have citizens, it has to have a geographic location of some kind. Um, it has to have rules and, and all these kinds of things. These define a kingdom. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom was largely established when the king arrived. And then what the king is doing is he's assembling kingdom citizens. That happens through salvation. That's why he said, repent and believe the kingdom is at hand. In other words, the pathway to becoming a citizen of this kingdom, the, the eternal kingdom, God's kingdom, is to be saved. It's to turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ alone for all that he has done on your behalf. And you become a kingdom citizen. This is why in Matthew 5-7 through 7 of the Sermon on the Mount, you largely have kingdom citizen living guidelines. How do we live as citizens in this kingdom? We live under one law in this kingdom, love God, love others. 
And so we've got a king, we've got, we've got kingdom citizens, but the problem is the king left. And we're here. And there's a prince of the power of the air, ruler of this dark world, and that's Satan. And so actually what we have is we have a king who's in heaven, not here. We have kingdom citizens, saved people, who are wandering around and living in a very corrupt world. And you guys showed up this Sunday morning, and you're full aware of how corrupt it is. You just came through a week of corruption, didn't you? Uh, a week of corruption of your own sin, other people's sin, suffering, hardship, difficulties, sorrows. Job certainly knew all those. And so it's a little bit like, well, what's going on? And, and so in the sense that we have a king, and we have kingdom citizens, all those that are saved, that's the already. But it's also the not yet. Because Jesus makes it very clear he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to make the kingdom come into full, obvious existence. There won't be anybody except for citizens of the kingdom. There won't be any more sin. There won't be any more tears or sorrow or corruption. There'll be none of that. We look forward to that wonderful great day when there's full justice, full healing, full, full reconciliation, full restoration. Everything our hearts long and hope for in King Jesus will come one day. But that's not yet. And so we have the already. We're citizens of the kingdom. The king came, but he left. But then we have the not yet. And so this is a hard place to be. It's like a long trip with no movie. <laughs> it's like a long line with no scenery. Worse than that, Job is showing us the incredible pain of already not yet, not yet living when we're in puzzling pain. And that's what these three chapters are about. Eliphaz is going to increase Job's suffering with a terrible perspective of what this already not yet is like. Job's actually going to take Eliphaz's bad counsel and do a deep dive into what God's doing in his own heart and his own life. And it's almost like a kind of hot shower to shock his own system into faith, belief, and integrity. He wants the pain to go away. But Job's struggles are actually going to teach us that there's a better way. So Job, chapter 22, let's talk about what Eliphaz says. First four verses, Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right, or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Now, this is what Eliphaz is saying. God is very distant and removed from what you're going through, Job. This is a formula. Do bad, get bad. Do good, get, get, get good. Does it profit God if you do good or bad? That's no real profit to God. He's just acting in response to what you've done. It's really like Eliphaz is telling Job, quit making this so personal. This isn't personal. This is just the, the equation of life. And, and Job, you need to understand that you are increasing your anxiety and your suffering and your struggle because you have made it all about this personal relationship with God in the sense, why does God hate me? This isn't about God hating you. God is opposed to wickedness. So you did wicked, you got bad. Get over it. If you want something different, then put something else in. Now, the way he says it is really interesting. Verse 2, when he says, can a man, the word there he uses for man is not your typical Hebrew word for man. It's actually a word you would use to describe a strong warrior, a, a, 
um, a, a powerful person. Can a powerful person be profitable to God? And significantly, it's most commonly used to refer to someone who's strong enough, get this now, to endure. And so what Eliphaz is saying to Job is, does God get anything out of you enduring? And these are rhetorical questions. The answer is no, from Eliphaz's perspective. God doesn't get anything out of your endurance, Job. Uh, God, God doesn't get anything. If you're wise, it's for your good. It's not, it's not like God is sitting in heaven. This is Eliphaz saying. It's not like God is sitting in heaven and saying, oh, I hope Job endures. I hope Job would stick it out. I hope Job responds wisely. And Eliphaz said, that's not it at all. God doesn't even care. It's just the way that it is. Of course, we know from the opening chapters, it couldn't be further from the truth. God is deeply concerned about Job, not in a worrying, anxious sense, but is deeply concerned with Job being, having integrity and enduring. Satan's attack was that he wouldn't. And God says, okay, attack him and watch how he does. Eliphaz says, God doesn't care if you have integrity. God says, look at my servant who has integrity. Actually, this all matters a great deal to God. Eliphaz is saying that God is using his power in a very robotic and emotionally disconnected way from your suffering. It's just what he does to the wicked. He gets nothing from this. But Eliphaz presses on there and then starts to describe kind of this power struggle that's going on in verses 5 through 11. Is not your evil abundant? Because Eliphaz believes this, this, this attack is unbelievable because he has no evidence for it. He has no proof for it. There are no examples of it, but he's going to go after job is not your evil abundant there is no end to your iniquities for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing stripped the naked of their clothing you have given no water to the weary to drink you have withheld bread from the hungry the man with power possessed the land the favored man lived in it you have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed therefore snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of water that covers you now, I'm not going to go verse by verse there to unpack every nuance of what he's saying. We could actually boil it down this way, though. First four verses, God's power isn't personal. It's just the way it is, Job. But you, Job, have used your power in a very personal way. You have used your power to hurt others for your gain. That's what they all boil down to. Uh, whether it is robbing from the poor um, not to give to the rich, but for you to consume, whether it's refusing to give bread that you had in abundance to someone that's starving, whether it's to give water to someone that's dying. Job, God uses his power in a robotic, emotionally detached way. It's a formula. You are a wicked man. You have used your power for your own personal gain. Now, none of that is true. None of it is accurate. None of it is righteous. Job, in fact, is suffering pain he doesn't deserve, and he has somebody looking at him and saying, it's your fault. You wouldn't hurt this way if you were different. There are few things you can say to a suffering person that are more painful than blaming them for suffering they didn't deserve. It is no different than the people who looked at Jesus and said, if you're really the Son of God, then get off the cross. In other words... You may have been innocent to get up there, but if you really have power, get off. In other words, your suffering is your fault. If you didn't do X, Y, or Z, 
then you wouldn't be in this kind of pain. Eliphaz is telling Job, God doesn't have some personal vendetta against you. Even though you've acted wickedly, it's just what happens when you act wickedly. If we could quote Eliphaz, stop making this about God loving you or not. He's simply responding to your sin. If you want a better response, then be better. Eliphaz then goes into this long diatribe about how God has seen what you've done, Job. And it's kind of this mindset that though no one else saw it, clearly God was watching it. You thought you could escape it. He's going to call to Job to repent, to get away from this robotic use of God's power to punish. He's going to say something else that really sticks out to Job. Look down in verse 12. Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are. But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? So that clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks out of the, on the vault of heaven. Eliphaz is interpreting Job saying, I didn't do anything to deserve this. Because Eliphaz is convinced that Job is covering his own sin. Eliphaz then interprets Job as believing that he could sin and get away with it, that God doesn't really see what he does. And it's one of those moments where Eliphaz is twisting a truth so subtly. Because the reality is, we don't get away with our sin. The reality is the wicked won't ultimately prosper. The, 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 the reality is we can't hide our sin from God. That's true. The problem is he's giving that medicine to someone who doesn't need that medicine. Um, I remember a number of conversations with Pete as he was getting treated with his cancer. They were giving him arsenic. I hear arsenic and I think two things. Arsenic and old lace and rat poison used to kill people. Right? That's what you think. Now, it was good for Pete because he's killing his leukemia. I don't want to take arsenic. Right? You give the wrong medicine to someone, it can kill them, not help them. The medicine Eliphaz is giving to Job is deadly because it's wrong application. You can have all the truth in the world, you wrongly apply it, and you're killing, not not healing. Man, I can't tell you how many times I'm sure I've done this in life and in ministry. And so Eliphaz has this picture of Job, says, you think you can hide from God? You can't hide from God. He goes on to appeal to him. Will you, verse 15, will you keep to the old way that wicked men have tried, trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them, saying, surely our adversaries are cut off. What they left the fire has consumed. In other words, he says judgment's going to come. It's the same drum that all the friends have been beating. God judges the wicked. He judges the wicked. He judges the wicked. Not just in eternity. He judges them right now. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, which assumes you were with him, you left him, now come back to him, you'll be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold, your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to Him. He will hear you. You will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter. It will be established for you and light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say it is because of pride, but He saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. He tells Job to repent. And it's actually a beautiful set of verses about what repentance looks like. But he's given medicine to a guy that doesn't need this medicine. 
He's hitting, we have an emergency defibrillator. He, you know, if your heart's not out of rhythm, rith- they put this on you and the little robotic voice actually tells you what to do. Because if you use them on somebody who doesn't need it, you can actually kill them. That's what Eliphaz is doing. He's calling him to repent. He tells him God sees what you're doing. Verses 12 through 14. He has this beautiful section on what repentance looks like. He says there's a mind of repentance. Verse 21, agree with God. Receive instruction from his mouth. Lay up his words in your heart. That's what, when you're starting to think differently about sin and what you've done. He says put deeds of repentance in, in, in place. Return to the Almighty. You'll be built up. Remove injustice from your tents. Have a heart of repentance. Lay gold in the dust. Gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed. Then the Almighty would be your gold and your precious silver. And basically, it's this poetic thing where he's saying, take all your prized possessions and put them before God, and he will be your treasure. It's so much like what Jesus will say ultimately, where he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. Kingdom citizens are about kingdom work and kingdom building, not kingdom building. They're not about more here. They're about more there. And so this is Eliphaz's appeal. Now what's interesting is when he says things, verse 26, you will delight yourself in the Almighty, lift up your face to God. What is the goal of Eliphaz's appeal to Job? The goal is not a renewed awareness that Jesus, that God really loves you. His appeal to Job is repent so life will be better for you. His appeal at the end has everything to do about regaining your position. You'll decide on a matter. It'll be established for you. Light will shine on your ways. When people are humbled, they'll say it's because of pride, but he saves the lowly because he's built you up. He delivers even the one who's not innocent. Who'll be delivered through the cleanness of your hands? In other words, Job... Your suffering is about all the things you've lost. You've lost your kids. You've lost your position. You've lost your respect. You've lost your health. You know what you can do, Job? You can repent. God will see that. And because of the formula, it's not even an emotional connection to God. But because of the formula, you'll get your life back. You'll get your kids back. You'll get, you'll get everything. You'll get respect back. There used to be an old joke. What happens if you play a country song backwards? You get your house back. You get your dog back. Get your wife back, right? That's Eliphaz's appeal. Eliphaz is the first Joel Osteen. God's on mission for you to have your best life now. It's an appealing message. But it's bad theology that equals a worse cure. A righteous person suffering puzzling pain. Here now, they get, they, they get to a point, and it's not that the pain, the actual pain doesn't matter, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, financial, that, that pain is there. But if you're in it long enough, so I'm not talking about like a day or a week, but if you're, you're in that already not yet, like Job at this point is probably several months into this, and you're in that puzzling pain long enough, you get to a point where it's less about the pain and it's more about the confusion and the puzzling of it. And it's more about this mindset of what have I done to make God so mad at me? What have I done that God needs to do this to me? How am I so, I already knew I was broken, but how am I so broken 
that this needs to be the fix. And for Eliphaz to picture God as some grand slot machine, put enough good coins in, pull the handle, you'll get good out. This does not bless or help Job at all. What good can the righteous one suffering puzzling pain do to make it stop? What was Job supposed to do? Let me just ask you. What, I, I wish I could sit with Eliphaz. And so what, what exactly was he supposed to do? Offer more sacrifices? Help more orphans? Help more uh, needy people? Get his, soul, his, his servants together like an army to go deliver from more unjust kings? What exactly was Job supposed to do more of or be better at if you would just do more, be more, get more, live more, love more, be more, then God would take all this away from you. You have no idea the unbelievable weight that that puts on Job in this moment. Because the terror and the fear of his own heart is already that he is not enough somehow and God doesn't love him. The biggest pain of Job's puzzling pain is that God has abandoned him. And when Job looks around and he sees that God has not abandoned others in the same way, there's no way for him to not think about this in a very personal way. So Eliphaz is making this argument, God is actually very emotionally removed from you, but if you would just do the right thing, then God would be pleased with you and you can get it all back. Leaves Job standing on shifting sand. Have you ever worked for a boss or maybe had an authority in your life, a parent even, um, another authority, where it's like you can never do quite the right thing. They give you lists one through five, you do one through five just the way they said it, and somehow there was hidden six, seven, eight, nine on the list. And you get to this point, you desperately want their approval, but you, it's like you can never quite do the right thing. And this is actually where this kind of bad theology leaves someone like Job. Look, the reality is, all of us are on a long journey to become like Jesus. Jesus is in us. We are in Christ. Christ is in us, and he has given the Holy Spirit as, as his presence to come out of us. And we all have a long way to go. So you and I could always look at somebody and find fault. But I want to remind you, it's not that Job was perfect, and it's not that other people we deal with are perfect, but they don't deserve this. They haven't earned this. And it's unrighteous, like Eliphaz, to blame them for it. It's unkind, and it's painful. And so this is what Job's going to respond to. And he's obviously going to respond in two chapters. Um, and so let's, let's talk about it. Deep longings and a long wait for, for Job. Eliphaz got Job thinking then, what would really help my pain? This doesn't help, so what medicine do I really need? Far from do better to be better, Job fixates on Eliphaz's portrayal of God as this distant, robotic, and uncaring God. It's almost like he's a deist. Lots of the founding fathers were actually deists. Um, that's not the same as a Christian or a believer, just so you know. A deist believes that God made this world like a watch. He wound it up, now it's running. So what happens, happens. So do better, get better. Do bad, get bad. That, that was the functional theology of, of lots of them, and, and that's actually the functional theology of Eliphaz. He's this robotic, disconnected person. And so what's interesting in that is he's actually gone to the right, to, right to the core of what would hurt, hurt Job the most. Job already feels like God's disconnected, and Eliphaz is saying, yeah, he really is. Get over it. 
And Job says, but I wanted a deep relationship with God. And so Job starts asking, where is God? You see it in chapter 23. Let me read verses 1 through 9. We'll split in a couple sections here. Then Job answered and said, today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Um, just as a pause, that is a reference. It's interesting. But what he's talking about is the physical result of the emotional turmoil. And so the emotional turmoil and the pain is so deep, and that's puzzling pain. That's not his physical health. But he says, my groaning, my inward groaning, it's like I can't, we can put it in modern terms, like I can't get out of bed. I can't do. I'm finding it difficult to function because of what's going on in my heart my soul. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what, that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. He would pay attention to me. There, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Where is God? Is what Job is saying. Nine times in the book of Job, he uses this phrase, oh that, that we see there in verse 3. Oh that. It's actually a cry of deep longing, of unfulfilled desire, of a want so bad that it hurts. I was teaching children's church a few weeks ago with a kid. I, kids, I did an illustration I've done with children for 20 years. <clears throat> and I get to this point where it's, I'm trying to talk to them about desire. What would they desire? I asked the little kids what some of their favorite foods were. Uh, Chick-fil-A nuggets with, with ketchup. Um, some were strangely specific. I don't mean strange like the kid's weird, but oddly specific. Hawaiian pizza from Hungry Howie's. That's oddly specific. You can get a Hawaiian pizza, but that, that's what that kid likes. Great for him. What do you not like? Sushi was the first answer I heard. I don't know what's the matter with that child. We just pray for them in the long run. They'll grow in their taste and appreciation. But he didn't like sushi. That's fine. Right? It just was fun. And so one of the things I'm just talking about desire, and I always pull out a piece of candy, usually a piece of gum, and I hold this piece of gum. Would you like this gum? Candy to children is just a powerful tool, right? You like this. Does this look good to you? Do you want this gum? And he goes, like, hey, they look like a dog, like starting to sell. And I take the gum and I unwrap the gum. Would you still like the gum? Oh, yes, yes, I want the gum. And then I pop the gum in my mouth and start chewing it. Yes, I know that's unkind. It's twisted. It makes a point. Hang on. I chew the gum. I take it out and I say, would you like this gum? There's always one. I've done this in Pennsylvania, Kansas, South Carolina, Wisconsin, and Michigan. There's always a child. Always one. Yeah, I still want it. It's like dripping, right? It's disgusting. I don't want to put it back in my mouth. But here, and the kid always wants it. I'm like, really? You want it? And he's like, yeah, 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 because he thinks he's funny. That's okay. It's always a boy. That's the way it is. And so then I take the gum and I rub it on the bottom of my shoe. And at that point, it's a make it or break it moment whether the kid, how, how much they want people's attention. There's, always, there's usually a child, larger group. Yeah, I still want it. Then I take it and I take it outside and I rub it in the dirt. I bring it inside. It's got dirt caked on it. It's nasty. It's been chewed. Do you still want it? Do you still desire it? Do you still long for it? And the kid now don't, wants nothing to do with it. I had one child one time in Wisconsin that still desperately wanted this piece of gum. So I had to walk to the bathroom. I took him with me. I wiped it on the urinal. Now do you want it? I had to break his spirit. That's what happened in that moment. He didn't want it anymore. There are things that we want. There's things that we become disgusted by. When Job uses the phrase, oh that, it is the deepest longing. This is an unkind moment because it's not lunchtime yet, but 
Some of you are already hungry. What would you want? It's, it's more profound than that. It, it's the kind of longing that keeps you up at night. Maybe it's the kind of longing you felt to be free from pain. Oh, that this would just stop. You ever been in a place where you're praying, I just want to feel better? And you're not even talking physically. You just want to not cry yourself to sleep at night. You just want to not wake up with it. Oh, that. It's that kind of longing. Job uses it, like I said, more than any other book in the Bible. He, he said he longs that his pain could be understood in chapter 6 for God to fulfill his hope. That's actually that God would kill him. That's how desperate he wants it. That God would defend him in chapter 11. That God would vindicate him in chapter 19. Look back down your Bibles. What does he say? Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Job is desperate for connection with God. The deep longing of a person suffering puzzling pain, listen to me now, please pay attention, is that God would care enough to pay attention to their hurt because it feels like they're all alone. It feels like they've done some unknown thing to God to turn him against them. Job wants to be in the presence of God. Job wants God to pay attention to him. He feels like his prayers are ignored and his tears fall unnoticed. Look at verses 8 and 9. The, the poetry here is profound. Um, he, when people in this culture, they typically, when they would talk about looking for God or finding God, they would look to the east. It's where the sun rises, right? And so when he's standing here, as he's using these, these compass points, he's thinking east. So if I go forward, if I were to go into the east, he's not there. If I were to go backward, that's the west. He's not there. If I, if, if I do not perceive him on the left hand when he's working. I, so I look to see, is God at work? And so I look to the north, he's not there. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. In other words, the deepest longing of Job's soul is to find the presence of God. And it's like his heart and his mind, because we know he physically hasn't done that. So he's saying, my heart and my mind has gone to every possible place. I feel like I could find God or just see him at work and there's nothing you ever been in a place where somebody has said to you trying to comfort your heart where do you see god at work where do you see his blessings and you can't come up with one now we know by faith that it's not true but we are in this moment entering into the puzzling pain of a righteous person that tells us the sense of someone in this situation who can't seem to find God is not something we should rush to condemn, but to seek to understand. The sufferer wants to know that God is invested in them, in their circumstances, in their pain, in their life, in order to know that all of this actually matters. Now, we are aware of spiritual apathy. <laughs> People that don't want to linger in the presence of God where time in prayer, time in singing, time in just soaking in the Word holds little appeal to them. They are full and they are rich and they are blind to their own needs and so they need nothing. It's an apathy that actually disgusts God. In the book of Revelation, it tells us that He spews out the apathetic. Nothing makes God... Listen, you know what makes God nauseous? When you and I are numb to His presence. It's take it or leave it. 
But this is a totally different experience. This is seeking and seemingly not finding. This is unfulfilled desire. This is unfulfilled hunger. Job wants nothing more than God, and he can't seem to find him anywhere. But he refuses to believe Eliphaz. He refuses to believe that it's because God's not invested or that he's some robot. Job presses on in faith, even though his feelings are screaming to him, God doesn't care. Do you ever feel that way? You ever feel like God is not really paying attention to what's going on in your life or your pain? Maybe in the busyness of it all or in the tininess of who you are, God just isn't all that concerned about you or your pain. When we're suffering, that's actually the biggest thing in the world to us. (laughs) It's unfathomable that a loving God isn't paying attention. And what we long for most is some reminder that he sees us, that he knows us, that he cares for us. And that he's going to do something about it. Job frustratedly cries out in verses 10 through 12. He knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Contrary to what Eliphaz claimed that God doesn't really care, Job believes God really cares that he has integrity and that he stays faithful and constant. And and Job is almost crying out, even though I can't find him anywhere, I know he sees me and I know he knows what's right about me. Faced with the silence of heaven, Job says, I have not abandoned God. It's ultimately the cry of every righteous person suffering puzzling pain god please please love me again job presses on though well then won't god act how does someone in the middle of pain like job's experiencing puzzling pain how does someone know that god cares how could you come to a place when you're in the midst of this very dark place feeling like you can't find god anywhere um your prayers are hitting the ceiling. They don't matter. You're not penetrating into heaven. God's not paying attention. God doesn't seem to care. But you believe and you're saved and you want to believe the truth and you want to walk. Where, how in the world can you convince your heart that God actually cares? Where do you go? And so he's already hinted at it when he said, when I looked at the, at the left or the right, I didn't see your actions. And now Job goes back to play off of Eliphaz's idea of power. God's power is a robot, an algebraic equation, uh, one plus one equals two, and put in and get out, and personal. But Job believes that God's power must be very personal because that's what his heart needs. He needs God to be personally invested in him. And so Job now starts to meditate from this point from this verse in chapter 23 all the way through 24, of if God would show his power, then I would know that he cares. That's, that's how he's thinking. And really in two ways. First, first, that God would bless the righteous. And that's what he's emphasizing there in verses 10 through 12. That God would, God's personally invested, and so that he would bless and, and, and show himself strong for the righteous. That there's forgiveness, there's approval, that God loves them. And what that would ultimately do is it drives Job to a deeper heart of reverence. Let's just finish out chapter 23. When he starts thinking about this, that God would love him and show his power to reveal the truth about Job, to vindicate him. Verse 13, but he is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires that he does. He will complete what he appoints for me. 
and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me, yet I'm not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. In other words, what Job is saying is when I start thinking about God being personally invested in me, and I start thinking about God's power, it drives my heart to worship him. I reverence him even more. This is the unique gift of puzzling pain. watched a brief video that Johnny Erickson Tata just released over the last week or two. I think she's got a new book out, a collection of her favorite hymns, daily devotionals that goes along with it. And she's talking about what it's like as a, as a Christian to go through pain. And one of the things she comments is that early on in her journey, she wrote a book. And she wrote a book about pain. Why does God bring pain into a believer's life? And it had all of the really good answers. Answers like he purifies you, he strengthens you, he reveals that you're really a believer. These kinds of core truths that we should think about pain for a believer. And she sent it away to Elizabeth Elliot for her read-through and for her maybe her endorsement. Elizabeth Elliot um, read the book and Johnny was desperate for what she had to say. And Elizabeth Elliot's response, I'm not quoting exactly, but essentially was this, it's all true, it's just all very distant. And what she meant by that was you can do truth about pain in a way that's not personally connected to you. And she said, Johnny, basically you're writing this out of your mind. And you're right. But it doesn't get down to the core of what's really going on. And now, Johnny, a number of decades later, is at a point where she's like, you know what pain really does? It makes you press into Jesus. And she's not saying none of the rest of that's true. It's all true. But she's saying that is the greatest and most important part. It makes you press into Jesus. And that's actually what we see Job doing here. As Job is meditating on needing God's personal connection and wanting to see his power, he's going to press into Jesus. When we meditate on God's power and who he is, it should drive our heart to reverence. But there's this question, secondarily, if the righteous are rewarded, then the wicked must be punished. So chapter 24 is an entire diatribe against the wicked and the punishment that they deserve. It's all about the abuse of the power of the wicked and Job's prayer that God would use his power in a, power, in a, in a significant way to punish wicked people. He shows where there's real abuse of power in verses 1 through 4. Uh, and it's, again, similar to the kind of abuse that Eliphaz accused him of. Uh, why, are there no t- why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? Why do those who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks. You do that to expand your property and steal from your neighbor. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. And so verses 1 through 4, he describes these abuses. If you skip down to verse 9, you see another abuse. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast. They take a pledge against the poor. They're slaveholders and slave masters. They possess things and people. That's how they use their power. In verses 5 through 8 and then 10 through 12, he describes the suffering. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their father in the field. They glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night naked without clothing. They have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains, cling to the rock for lack of shelter. Verse 10, they go about naked without clothing, hungry. They carry the sheaves. 
Among the olive rows of the wicked they make oil. They tread the wine presses but suffer thirst. Out of the city by the dying groan, the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. Job is saying this part of the impersonal nature here. It feels like God is not taking care of the righteous and it feels like he's not cursing the wicked. I know one day, one day he'll vindicate the righteous in eternity. Where he moves in chapter 24 is I know one day God will punish the wicked. God sees what they're doing. Verses 13 through 17, just for sake of time, we can make this note. In verses 13 through 17, he agrees with Eliphaz. God actually does see what the wicked are doing, and he sees what these guys are going to do, are doing. Part of the argument is Eliphaz is claiming God punishes them right now. Job is saying, no, no, he's going to punish them in eternity. Their day will come. And 18 through 25 point to this future punishment. There are long-term costs. Hell's punishment after they're dead. Even when he uses phrases like little while, it refers to the whole length of their life. And so this is what Job is trying to do. In the midst of his already not yet, in the living in puzzling pain, he is desperate for some personal connection with God. And the way he's trying to comfort his heart is this. I don't think God's going to fix any of this now. That's what he's telling himself. I think this is now my lot in life. I am going to hurt, and I'm going to be miserable, and I'm going to feel like God doesn't care. But one day, when I die, and in eternity, God will make all things right. And that's what Job is trying to use to comfort his heart. Now, if you read through the Psalms, and if you maybe did even some of those lament Psalms that that Darren so helpfully walked us through, you saw, or you would have seen, maybe you remember this, that that is actually a common hope for the psalmist who's suffering, that one day God's going to fix it. One day in eternity he's going to fix it. He will. He sees your pain, he sees your suffering. Even a cup of cold water given in his name will be rewarded richly. No idle word that's been spoken will go without being punished. No evil deed that's been done against his children will go unpunished. The wicked will suffer and they'll suffer for eternity. In eternity, it will be fixed. And let me ask you this question then. Is that our hope? And I want to be quick to say, yes, but there's more. And I want to say to you this morning that looking forward to eternity and hope in God's ultimate justice does, in part, prove his personal love for us. But God is burdened. He is burdened that you and I experientially know his loving presence and power right now. Not just by faith believing, but by heart stirring, mind convincing, life-transforming ways that he intends for you and I to walk in a way that finds comfort and presence and personal affection from God, even in the midst of our puzzling pain. Now, one of the things that stood out to me that, that resonated with me in watching this video from Johnny Tata is she talked about in her pain, she gets to a point um, and she talked about her quadriplegia, not that pain, not her two bouts with stage three cancer. 
but she has ongoing, daily, persistent, nonstop pain. And she said that's been what's most difficult because when you're in that kind of pain, it's hard to put even two thoughts together. Now, I don't know about you, but it really doesn't matter if it's physical, emotional, relational, financial. And you're in deep, deep pain. You know exactly what that's like when you can't even put two thoughts together. And she said she felt like she couldn't even pray because prayer takes effort and thought and intention and you can't even put words together anymore. You're just trying to functionally live, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. And what she found as a solace to her soul was the countless hymns that she has memorized over time. And what she's pointing out is a psychological, sociological, scientific reality. Our God has wired our brains in such a way that like muscle memory, we can learn to do something. And when we do something repeatedly over and over and over and over again, we create these neural superhighways to make it easier. If you've ever learned to play the piano or play the guitar, play any other instrument, you know this. Practice, practice, practice. Suddenly you just do it. Typing. I didn't know how to type until 10 years ago. Yes, I actually went through Bible college and went through a graduate degree not knowing how to type. That was foolish. That was dumb. That takes a long time to write a paper. I got sick of it. Took one summer. I'm going to learn how to type. I did an estimation last year. I've probably saved myself seven hours of work a week because I now know how to type. I'm not near as fast as my 70-year-old mother-in-law. She was a secretary for I don't know how many years. She's wicked fast. It's, it's like crazy, right? You got a WD-40 those keys so she doesn't burn them up. But I'm now much quicker, super highways. It's, it's muscle memory. You just do it. Football players, over, 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 over again. So it's muscle memory. Guess what? Mental things can work the same way. When you and I memorize things and we repeat it and we know it, it can create neural superhighways. It's the way God's made our bodies. It's an amazing thing. So that when you can't use the part of your brain, listen to me now, to think, to pray, your heart can sing what you've memorized. And God can miraculously, supernaturally use that to comfort your heart. In other words, one of the most profound gifts we can give to someone is texts of Scripture and truths that they have carved deep into their minds and hearts. So that in the midst of puzzling pain, they can just go to it. And I want you to know this. This is the key. I'm going to lock a door for you here. What if God has already given most, if not all of you, something you already know by heart that will comfort your hearts in the midst of puzzling pain? So that my only homework for you is to start using the key. That's actually the Lord's Prayer. You know, if you do a funeral, you have a lot of lost people there. There's three things you can be guaranteed that almost everyone in American culture will know. John 3.16, Amazing Grace, and the Lord's Prayer. I learned a long time ago, put them in. Because even people that are not comfortable around church, they're unchurched, non-churched, odds are they know one, if not all three of those things. It's our culture. People who just love NFL know John 3.16. It's ridiculous. But hey. And what's fascinating is when you line up these chapters of Job, you can actually line them up almost perfectly with the Lord's Prayer. And it becomes an in-between prayer for us. What does Job say? And you can find it if you turn your Bibles there to Matthew 6, just to remind your hearts. What does Job say? Oh, that I knew where he was. And where does Jesus tell us to pray? Our Father in heaven. I know where you are. There's an emotional intimacy there. The title he gives is, it's not, it, and, and, and I'm not, it's not sin or wrong to pray this, but it's not, oh, ancient of days. It's not, oh, eternal one. It's not, oh, creator. 
It is this intimate, connected reality, our Father, our Father. We are adopted as His children, Galatians 4. We are made joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8. We are sons and daughters of the King, Ephesians 3. Oh, Father. You know, we live in a world where people are in pain, they want their mom. I don't have a problem with that. But what Jesus is telling us is when we are in a daily way, and in a daily need, and what I'm telling you is when you're in puzzling pain and you can't put two thoughts together because God in His grace and in our culture, maybe the wisdom of, of the church you grew up in or family members that, that required you to memorize Scripture, required you to memorize things, your mind can go to this, my Father. And where is He? He is in heaven he looks down and he sees and he knows. He is not bothered by my questions. When, my, when, when a child needs a drink of water in the middle of the night, the dad's not angry. He, he gets them. Who can awaken the king in the middle of the night? Only the prince. Who can go to God at any time in their puzzling pain? His children can. Our Father in heaven. He's not bothered by your confusion or by your sorrow. You might even have others that, that are irritated like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Can't you just get over it? God is never that way towards you. He is your Father. Job runs to reverence in his prayers, doesn't he? He immediately goes, I fear and revere him. What do we say? Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means I revere who you are. I can't run to God as my Father without my heart being humbled before him. How, do I, how does Steve Johns get to go into the throne room boldly? Because he's my daddy. No good father is disconnected from the suffering of their children. No good father is uncaring to the sorrows of their little girl. No good dad doesn't doctor up the skin knees and, and the bruised face of their little boy who took a tumble. No good dad would be ignorant of the puzzling pain of your life. Oh, that makes you worship him. It makes you revere him. It makes you bow before Him and see Him as holy and glorious. Let your mind soak in what the fulfillment of His total kingdom would be like. It's not just reverent worship. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Job goes on and he thinks, I would know personal power, presence and the power of God if I'd see Him use His power. And what does Jesus tell us to pray? Pray that His kingdom come, His will be done. What does that mean, His kingdom come? Remember, we're already not yet. He defines it. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what? In one sense, God's sovereign will, everything is within his will. I know that. But there's also a desirous will of God where he is holding back and there are things that he wants that he has not yet unleashed. But there is coming a day when God says, move, everything gets moved. When he says, stop, everything gets stopped. The sinners are banished, Satan is gone, and it's just us in the kingdom with the king. And he says, our hearts should long for that. It's like this prayer is written for somebody in puzzling pain. My heart longs for your kingdom. In that moment, I begin to be reminded I'm a kingdom citizen. What am I supposed to functionally do in my puzzling pain, Steve? Where am I supposed to go? Let me tell you something. Just do the next right thing. Work out his kingdom will in your life. But to be honest, for the sufferer, that doesn't move us any different from where Job was. But God really sees and he cares. Look at all these requests. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Job had no clear view of comfort beyond looking to eternity, but Jesus gave you and I more. I'll just be honest with you. 
putting this into practice in my own personal life has been such a balm to my soul. Because then my heart starts going meditating. You know where Job says I looked east, west, north, south? The funny thing is, if Job had only known this, or if he'd only had a good comforter there who could have said, Job, here is a bowl of porridge for your lunch. That's from God. That's from God. Here is some salve for your wounds. This is from God. Here are some bandages for you. Here is grace for today. Job, God is not angry with you. He does not despise you. He does not, remember, can I just remind you, Job, he has forgiven you of your sins. He has forgiven you. And he's not angry with your confusion, your hurt, your pain, or your puzzling question. He is not angry with you, Job. He's forgiven you, and he loves you, and he cares for you. He is protecting you from spiritual evil, and he's on mission to make you more like his son because he loves you. It's daily blessing. The reality is this, in the in-between of our puzzling pain, if you're laying in bed, sitting in a dark room, unable to put your thoughts together, driving a car and having to pull off to the side because you're crying so much you can't see straight, you're needing to be able to find comfort. I'm calling you during your puzzling pain to start praying this very simple and yet incredibly profound prayer because in it you can experientially know and be reminded of the reality that God sees and God cares. The in-between of our puzzling pain can help us pray and hope. Father, Father, we thank you for Job and our hearts long for this dear brother, even though we know it's so many thousands of years ago. Lord, our hearts still ache for him.